Trojan fans. It's time for another installment of the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We give you the inside scoop on everything about USC football recruiting from the experts who know what they're talking about. Which players have an offer, which ones don't, who the coaches like, and who our experts like. And now, here are your co-hosts for the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher Ryan Abraham and uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. Hey Trojan fans, welcome to the Peristyle Podcast, Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast with Gerard Martinez, our uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst extraordinary. He knows exactly what's going on in the world of USC recruiting. We love to talk to him. We both just got back from Baltimore for the Rivals five-star challenge with over a hundred of the top players in the country that we got to see in person, uh, checking them out. So we just want to welcome Gerard to the show. What's going on, man? Nothing much. Just getting ready for the uh, camp season, which is now officially underway with Rivals five-star challenge. And uh, now we go away from there. We start to go to some team camps. I'm going to have a lot of satellite camps in Southern California for Cal and Utah and some other schools here just in the next uh, couple of weeks. And then USC is going to have their lineman camp and their skill camp. And then uh, we give way to B2G camp. And then that's a rising stars camp that's after that. And it's all finished up with the opening up in uh, Portland, uh, actually Beaverton, Oregon, uh, to kind of end the summer of camps on the West Coast. Uh, so it's going to be a very busy month for USC recruiting and evaluation here uh, over the next several weeks. Yeah, really busy. And I uh, wanted to, we have a bunch of questions, but I wanted to kind of talk about the Rivals Challenge, which was a lot of fun to kind of go out and, and cover that and see uh, some of the top prospects that USC's uh, interested in. I mean, a lot of talent out there, Gerard. Uh, two commits uh, for USC were out there. Uh, Cameron Smith, the four-star linebacker from Granite Bay, uh, same high school as Dallas Sartz, who played linebacker at USC, and uh, Chuma Idoga, who uh, is a five-star offensive tackle. Uh, USC grabbed out of the state of Georgia. We got to see him go against uh, the number one player in the country quite a bit. But maybe we'll start off just talking about what you saw from the, the two USC commits. Yeah, I think uh, we could start with just the Chuma Idoga uh, offensive tackle out of Powder Springs. Um, a guy that's a five-star, uh, rated the number one offensive tackle in the country. I don't know if he's going to maintain that ranking by rivals after the rivals five-star camp. Um, he did go against Byron Coward quite a bit. Byron Coward knew who he was. Byron Coward as the number one player overall in the country, defensive end, 6'3", 250 pounds, and a very focused, very talented young man. And he went in and uh, basically had a strategy session with the recruiting analyst the night before the camp started. And so he watched a lot of tape on Adoga and saw some specific things that he did that, uh, you know, maybe Coward could exploit. And then when we saw in the field, uh, those two guys go one-on-one, you know, Coward kind of called him out and basically, you know, beat him on the majority of the reps. I think maybe a couple reps, you know, Adoga wins in a, in a real setting of football. Um, but overall, Coward really won that matchup. Now, granted, you have to look at the context of things. I mean, it's not pads, and the game is a lot faster for the defensive line when you know, the offensive lineman can't really grab onto your pads at all. Um, and Adoga is, is really undersized right now for an offensive tackle. I mean, he's, you know, maybe, maybe 275, maybe 280 around that range, um, but certainly doesn't have the leverage and the power uh, to, you know, really – 
prevent a guy like Byron Coward to be able to just get underneath his pads and push him back. There was one play there where Byron Coward beat him, but it was a bull rush, and you really can't have bull rushes in those types of situations. Usually um, that's kind of off limits when you're talking about a camp situation and one-on-ones between offensive linemen and defensive linemen. So uh, it was one of those things where Adoga didn't play bad. I, I think that you know more than anything needs to be stated. He wasn't bad. He was definitely competitive against Byron Coward, uh, but he just didn't win a majority of his reps. And so, um, you know, still going to be maybe some questions there as to whether he's a real offensive tackle or he's a guy that should slip down and play guard. He does have long arms. He's very high cut. Uh, but maybe he develops more into a guard, possibly even a center with those long arms. He's a smart kid, uh, would definitely be kind of a, a, a quarterback uh, of the offensive line, if you want to say, because, I mean, he definitely, uh, I think, understands the nuances of the game from a mental perspective. He's a cerebral player, um, but just doesn't have that quite elite height at this point to be a surefire offensive tackle. So I think those questions will still remain as to whether he plays on the outside or they'd bump him in to the interior. Um, and obviously Cameron Smith is the guy that we've seen uh, quite a few times over the spring and now coming into the summer, 6'2", 240 pounds, definitely not a 7-on-7 seven seven guy. We've talked about that in the past. Um, he's more of a downhill Mike linebacker, uh, a guy that's a, a run stopper. Um, Speed-wise, it, it is an issue for him when he gets past that 10-yard mark. When he has to start to guard a route that either goes deep or goes to the sidelines more than 10 yards, the, the receiver or the tight end begins to separate. We actually saw Coward go after Cameron Smith as well. So he got both the USC commits at the five-star <laughs> challenge. Uh, he played some tight end, and uh, Cameron Smith guarded him. And, and both times, Coward pretty much ran by him. So, you know, that's really showing where Smith is not really the fastest linebacker in the world. You know, Coward is a guy that's probably going to play with his hand on the ground uh, as a defensive end, and he still was able to run past him pretty easily on both his routes. Uh, but, again, Cameron Smith didn't really play bad either. Uh, there were some uh, drills and some things where you saw that when he played in more of a team concept, when you started to have players around him, uh, he directed traffic well. Um, his team ended up winning the seven-on tournament team highlight, and he was one of those guys that was playing linebacker. They had uh, uh, Osa Messina, they had Cameron Smith, and they also had another player, Nick Connor, who played really well uh, at linebacker for them. And their team had really the biggest linebackers of any of the teams there. Um, and they ended up winning the seven on seven. And a lot of that had to do with uh, those linebackers being able to pick up the check down passes and the little quick passes over the middle. And so in that setting, I thought Cameron Smith actually played pretty well and uh, really good in terms of his awareness and agility and picking up those quick routes. It was more of during one-on-ones when you have, you know, that, that five, six seconds that the quarterback just sits back there and just waits for the the receiver to get open, and the receiver basically has the whole field that he can run some imaginary route, that's when Cameron Smith really struggled. And and you could see where, from a speed standpoint, he's not going to win many foot races. Um, So there was uh, those two guys out there, but there was actually a lot of big uh, USC targets. Um, I'll mention some, maybe if there's some highlights or or just – notes you know we can talk about a couple and we have to talk about everyone but there was uh um Rasheem Green from Sarah High School uh five-star uh defensive tackle John Houston also from <laughs> Sarah High School uh five-star linebacker he was out there another five-star guy was uh Iman Marshall uh, the defensive back from Long Beach Poly we saw Arizona wide receiver Christian Kirk got a lot of him Isaiah Langley Northern Cal uh DB we saw a bunch of him um we talked about Yvonne Marshall. Uh, Osama Messina was a, a, he looked really good to me, the linebacker from Utah. 
uh, four-star kid. And um, Stanley Morgan was an interesting guy. He's a Louisiana uh, wide receiver, four-star guy, and came out and kind of surprised people with saying USC, UCLA, and uh, LSU were his top three. So that was kind of interesting. And then Equinamia St. Brown kind of rounds out the guys that I was at least focusing on and filming on. So I don't know if you want to – any of those guys you want to mention and talk about or, or anyone else that you saw there that you thought was interesting. Well, the target list definitely expanded in this event, and that's kind of sort of something that we see with the bigger national events. Um, you know, kids come in and, and guys that you look at and go, well, that guy doesn't really have any interest in USC. All he has to do is mention USC to one of the national riders, and all of a sudden he becomes a USC target. So Terry Godwin is a guy that's a receiver out of Georgia that USC had offered during the spring and really had zero contact with, and all of a sudden he walks in and says, oh, yeah, I want to visit USC. So all of a sudden he becomes a, a target. Uh, Stanley Morgan, not to be confused with Stanley Norman, Stanley Morgan uh, out of uh, Louisiana, a receiver is about six foot one, uh, about 190 pounds, uh, a pretty good size receiver, uh, good speed, came in and said, you know, basically I'm going to go to LSU or I'm going to go to UCLA or USC. So everybody asked, Okay, so basically that's your top three. And then he backed off on that and said, oh, no, UCLA and USC aren't my top three. So you have those kids nationally from the South that talk up USC, and it's almost just something that they do because it's an exotic out-of-state, out-of-region type option that they have. And obviously USC has a big name in terms of tradition. So they talk about USC and visiting Los Angeles, but whether that really comes to fruition or not remains to be seen. Um, and, and outside of that, there were obviously a lot of targets there, uh, a ton of kids. I mean, you talked about Osa Messina who's uh, a very interesting dynamic linebacker, a guy that really hasn't played much linebacker in camp settings. He usually plays running back. So coming into this, you know, he was a little nervous. I talked to him about playing the linebacker position and playing in some drills and, you know, having to you know play linebacker one-on-one against those small little running backs. And he was definitely a little wary of that, but he did a great job. I mean, he's a guy that I think more than anything, I was just surprised how massive he's become because we've seen him before, saw him a, a couple years ago at the first rivals camp and, you know, tall and, and had some length, but not really necessarily a, a big kid in terms of his, just his bulk and his muscle mass and, now you watch him, and he's, he's a big guy. I mean, he's 230, almost 235, and he runs really well. And at the same time, is pretty raw from the standpoint of coverage. I mean, you watch his film. He plays in the middle of the line of scrimmage and is really very aggressive on run stopping, but isn't a guy that really plays a lot in coverage and dropping back. And we saw him, you know, in this setting, and just instinctually he was able to do some things well coverage-wise. So once he starts to learn the fundamentals and the techniques of being able to play linebacker, he's going to be that much better. Um, you know, John Houston was excellent in seven-on-seven, and he didn't even make the all-rivals team. I don't know what people were looking at. He did get hurt, so he didn't play in every game. He had a little bit of a lower back injury. But I watched him play specifically specifically against Christian Kurt. Now, Christian Kurt is another USC target. At this point, you know, it's kind of Texas A&M, Ohio State, USC in that order, I think, although he won't say that. He's, you know, maybe 5'10", 5'11", very, uh, you know, physically developed in terms of, you know, being a very muscular, strong receiver. And he's dynamically quick. He's extremely quick. And they had him running a lot into the flat, a lot of quick outs, a lot of little zigzags up into the seam. And, you know, he was killing a lot of teams. And what we saw was that John Houston was the guy that they put in there. And when they put John Houston over him, they really took away a lot of the plays that he was making, a lot of the checkdowns, a lot of things that he was doing. He was getting two-point conversions a lot just on that little quick out. And John Houston was athletic enough to get out there, play that route, and, you know, if 
Kirk, Christian Kirk caught the ball, keep the gain to a minimum, and, and one specific play which I saw and I thought, wow, okay, this is really why I love John Houston. Uh, Christian Kirk ran the quick out, but then really turned it into an out and up, and it was really more of a little bit of a chair route. And a lot of linebackers, because Christian Kirk is so quick and he can get out to those hashes so quick, that you run, you got to run hard, really hard to get out there and then get anywhere near covering him as a linebacker. So what you do is you bite up on that route, and then Christian Kirk goes up and up the sideline, and he's gone. He's just too fast for any linebacker to cover in that situation. But what you know, John Houston was able to do is that he's athletic enough where he didn't have to bite completely 100% on the out. And the minute he saw Christian Kirk turn his shoulders towards the, the end zone, he immediately made a beeline and tried to angle off that up route. So as Christian Kirk got up the sideline and tried to get deep, John Houston was already cutting that route off, and it prevented the quarterback. Quarterback wanted to go there, and he had to pump it and go, no, I can't go there, and went somewhere else. And I thought, wow, that's everything about John Houston. He's fast enough and has the athletic ability to kind of get out there and, and, and half at least cover that out route against the guy that's you know so small yet so quick, and then had the cerebral awareness enough to go, okay, wait, wait, i got to get over to the sideline and cut this route off because I know he's just trying to okey-doke me. So um, that was really a great play by John Houston. I thought he did really well. Like I said before, got a little hurt, so that you know ended up being a, an issue for him, and he didn't play all the games, and perhaps that was taken into account when they did the you know old rivals five-star team or what have you. Um, the other guy that was obviously very dominant was Iman Marshall. Um, he was the best defensive back there, and – I, and again, kind of using Christian Kirk as an example, Christian Kirk's team was killing uh, Iman Marshall's team. That was a team highlight versus Team Renegade. Team Renegade was like the team that everybody kind of said, okay, we think they're going to win the seven on seven because they had a lot of Southern players, a lot of guys that were, you know, top end guys. Um, you know, they had a great defensive backfield. And Christian Kurt was killing this team. He just was, he just a lot of little curl routes and a lot of quick outs, and he was just killing them and, they're, and getting a lot of uh, yards after catch. And in a seven on seven situation, that's hard to do. So that kind of shows you, uh, you know, how athletic Christian Kirk is. So he's killing them, he's killing them, he's killing them, and they go up like two touchdowns. And somewhere along the line, I don't know if his mom Marshall said to his coaches, hey, I want to take Christian Kirk and shadow him man on man, or the coaches decided just to do that. But they put Amon Marshall over Christian Kirk in the slot. Christian Kirk, I don't think he caught another pass. Maybe he caught one more pass, but he was completely taken out of the game. I mean, it was like night and day. He was doing really well. Their team was doing really well. And then Team Renegade ended up winning that game because they couldn't pass it to him anymore. They had to go to other places. And so uh, that kind of showed me all I needed to know about Amon Marshall. I mean, he was great in one-on-ones. He was great in drills. He was the first guy up. He was basically an example for every drill that they did. Um, the guy knows coverages. He can diagnose really well. And then he has the athleticism and the speed to be able to back it up. So uh, he was who we thought he was, <laughs> so to speak, uh, at that five-star event. Yeah, I think one of the analysts had a funny remark that they were doing one-on-ones and no one was catching any passes on them. One guy caught like a slant route on them and, and did a flip afterwards. Like That's telling you something. That's the one pass that gets caught on them. The guy's so excited he does a flip over it. Yeah, yeah, he, he's 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 big and he's strong and and you know this was a really I, I'll say this too a really really good deep group 
of defensive backs. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there that were doing well. The receivers uh, in, in one-on-one drills weren't really doing really a whole lot, quite frankly. And it was really the defensive backs day and the defensive backs, I think, event, so to speak. I mean, from what I saw in terms of physical specimens and the guys that were just really standing out, it was really more the defensive backs. And, you know, Mount Marshall was the best of the best group. Uh, well, that's, it. that's our, the Rivals five-star challenge. A lot of uh, USC targets, so stay tuned. To uscfootball.com, we'll have isolation video on all those guys I mentioned, actually. will go up on the site. We put some of them up there. There's a lot more videos to come and, and more analysis and stuff, so check it out. Gerard will update the target list as well, like you said. But let's get to some of these questions, Gerard. They've been sitting around. I feel bad we haven't done a podcast for over a month on the recruiting side, so we wanted to get back into it. Um, Jeff had a few questions. Uh, first one was, he keeps hearing that USC is going to get four or five uh, defensive linemen in this class. Uh, is USC looking strong? USC is looking strong with Green. What do you think uh, about filling the fourth and fifth spot? Fifth spot with Daniel and Jefferson already committed. And is there a preference between defensive tackle and defensive end? I think what USC really would like to do is probably bring in a JUCO defensive end to be able to replace Leonard Williams. I, I think. That's definitely been something kind of on the radar, and we've seen a couple to go uh, defensive end offers go out, and I think there could be even more on the way. I think being able to bring in a guy that's physically ready to play right away, and you know if you bring in a high school kid, Jacob Daniels, who's you know a good six five, three hundred ten pounds, he may just not be mature enough and, and and physically ready to be able to kind of get in there and be a guy that can contribute enough. Uh, to be able to replace a guy like Leonard Williams. Granted, I don't know if you're going to be able to replace Leonard Williams completely. He is a great player and obviously a guy that uh, is going to be, I think, a first-round pick unless something crazy happens. Uh, So you're not necessarily going, okay, we have to replace this guy with a guy that's going to be as good. But you have to do it sort of in a platoon-type fashion. So, you know, you can have your high school guys, and and obviously, you know, Jacob Daniels and and Noah Jefferson are are two very good players. I mean, Noah Jefferson is definitely underrated in in terms of just pure physical skill. um, I mean, he's he's, he's way up there. He's a very special-type player, and I think he has that disposition. He could come in and play hard. Now, granted, can he play right away? It's going to depend a lot on, you know, the processing of the playbook and kind of how he does with his grades and making sure he gets eligible. So there's that side of things that you have to take into account. But from physical standpoint, I think he's a guy that can come in and actually contribute right away. So that's how much I think of Noah Jefferson. Um, so you have those high school guys that you can plug in there. And, you know, obviously either of them could end up playing maybe inside to, uh, you know, Jacob Daniel actually plays uh, over the center for his high school team. I just think he's a tad bit tall to be doing that, you know, in high school or at the college level. I think you probably rather have him at end. And, and, you know, if USC starts to go into more of a 4-3 at some point and, and you know, shift in their defensive line around, he's a little more of a, a three technique than a one technique. Um, but, you know, you do have those guys that can rotate and can come in. And, you know, Chris Wilson, defensive line coach for USC, talked about those guys all being X's. They're all X's because they basically all have to play – all three different positions uh, on that defensive line. You know, they want to play either side of the defensive end spot, and they all have to play inside at some point. So um, that just gives more versatility to the defensive line in general in terms of having a rotation. You're not just stagnant with, okay, that guy can play this position, that guy can play that position, and if somebody gets hurt, well, you can't move anybody around. Um, but I think that the one thing we might see is the push for a junior college defensive end there just to kind of bring in some maturity to plug right in right away because you're going to lose Leonard Williams probably to the draft. All right. Um, 
Jeff also had a wide receiver question, but Lamar did too. I'll ask Lamar's more specifically, but you can kind of talk about wide receiving, uh, wide receiver recruiting in general. He said, I often look at the rivals' rankings on the website. I'm anticipating a banner class for USC in 2015. I think the class at some point will see a playoff uh, before they graduate. I believe USC will pick up two more top-level DTs, two defensive backs, a couple more linebackers, defensive ends, uh, elite offensive linemen, and, and a couple good running backs. However, it appears we are in need uh, of a wide receiver. A tall, good route running, great pass catching wide out would be the icing on the cake. On that note, uh, he says Tim Irwin. I think he means Trent Irwin. Uh, does Trent Irwin not like SC and UCLA? Why or why not? So that's Lamar talking about the wide receivers. Well, with Irwin, he doesn't like either school because neither school has offered him. So at this point, he doesn't have an offer, so he can't consider him options. And I think that's, you know, very rational and understood. You know, you can't look at it as, okay, I like USC and I use UCLA. They're my top two, but neither school has offered me a scholarship at this point, and they've seen me multiple times. So um, they can't be options until they create themselves as options. Uh, as for – you know, getting a bigger receiver, I think there's definitely a push for that. I, I think USC is going to have to go for at least one guy that's a little bigger. I think they want to have maybe a little more dynamic uh, receiving core than they have at this point. Really, Darius Rogers is the only guy that's a big receiver, a split-in type, and he's really not all that big. I mean, technically he's only about six one and a half, six two, so he's not the biggest guy in the world. Certainly he's not a Mike Williams type. I think – all coaches that have any kind of pro-style roots want to see some big receivers. They just sort of have to have some big receivers in there. And when you look at the NFL draft, obviously a lot of those guys picked you know, in the early rounds outside of maybe Brandon Crooks uh, is, is big, are big-time receivers that are big guys that have big stature. So it makes it obviously easier from a pass possession standpoint to just throw a ball in the area and have a guy that's 6'4", you know, 220 pounds, be able to grab it. At this point on the radar, you know, Equinemia St. Brown is the biggest He's the most obvious guy, you know, 6'5", about 200, or excuse me, 195 pounds, not 295 pounds, 195 pounds. Um, you know, a guy that's – there's a lot of comparisons with him and Patrick Turner. He has really quick feet, really good routes, and he's really pretty fast for a guy his size. Um, and he moves in and out of his breaks really well. Uh, smart kid, has good awareness. But I think the questions that keep coming back on him is – is he a vertical guy that's six five? Does he is he a guy that really has to be a little more Dwayne Jarrett where you got to throw the ball downfield? And he's not a guy that can play underneath and use his size kind of like a basketball player, maybe like a center playing in the paint where he can kind of post up the defense and make those easy throws for the quarterbacks. That's I think the question. Does he have the physical? aptitude does he have that awareness and that uh, toughness inside to be able to create lanes and spaces for the quarterback to throw the ball and then you know take on those hits and be that guy that's physical over the middle and underneath or is it a guy that is big and you kind of have to throw those jump balls deep to I think that's really what people are trying to figure out with him and Obviously, with USC, we're talking about Leonard Williams being able to come in, right, or excuse me, uh, leaving for the NFL draft and having a JUCO guy come in right away, and from a maturity standpoint and a physical readiness standpoint, be able to contribute. I think at the receiver position, you know, having lost uh, Marquise Lee, and we're going to see what happens with the dynamic of, 
this recruiting class coming in, you know, you've got Adore Jackson and you've got a couple other guys that could play either way from, you know, basically our intel says that Adore Jackson is going to play offense. Another small receiver, if you have a guy that comes in right away and you want a bigger receiver, then maybe you go to the Juco route. And Daquan Hampton is a guy that USC has been recruiting, uh, 6'4", about 220 pounds, another big receiver, a guy that actually played some offensive line at Dominguez High School, uh, had really no scholarship offers, was not a guy that people were really looking at. And then he goes on uh, to Long Beach City College and starts playing receiver, and uh, you know all of a sudden he's he's a big time guy and, and a guy that everybody's really excited about. And USC's looking at him; they have yet to offer him a scholarship, but that's also a possibility in terms of the bigger receiver. So I think there's definitely room in this class for the bigger receiver. We talked a little bit about Sarkeesian, and I think he's much more comfortable with the smaller receivers, uh, especially running those little um, those screen passes and those things that they do uh, behind the line of scrimmage. Um, I think, you know, Lane Kiffin really kind of didn't like those guys. He wanted guys that were six foot and above. I think Steve Sarkeesian is okay with the, the smallest slot receivers he has, and they're obviously, you know, Christian Kirk, and there's a few guys in this class that they could add to that group of receivers but I think there is definitely going to be a, a push for maybe a guy that's just a little bigger and you know so they have uh, maybe that capability of going underneath and, and having a bigger guy that's physical you run different routes and you just could do different things with your offense with that guy all right uh for, talking about some of the uh, Sarah players Jeff wanted to know the last thing uh Iman, well not not all from Sarah Iman Marshall from Long Beach Poly uh John Houston and uh Rasheen Green uh, any idea when they you think they're going to commit? Probably signing day. Um, John Houston may do it a little earlier. They played around with maybe the Army game, maybe the Under Armour game, maybe you know a little bit earlier than signing day, but it's going to be late. Okay, so all those guys are going to be uh, late. All there. those guys, yeah. Imam Marshall, yeah. Rasheen Green, John Houston, um, basically all those top players, Southern California, uh, definitely want to wait out the process. Okay. Uh, we have, these are some kind of uh, general recruiting questions that people ask about uh, fairly often. And I, maybe we should note here before we even get into this, Gerard, um, that with sanctions ending this week, as far as probation goes, uh, it's going forward, USC can sign full classes of 25 like we talked about. USC still has to play uh, class of, I mean, for the uh, season, 2014 season, USC still needs to play uh, with 75 guys by our count on the scholarship distribution chart, they actually have 72. Three of those guys are former walk-ons, so it's really uh, like 69 guys on on scholarship at this point. But um, any, have you heard anything? You know, with sanctions kind of ending from recruits, anything? Anyone talking about you know USC be able to sign full classes? Is that something that some of the recruits have been talking about? Yeah, I mean, quite a few recruits have, have mentioned it. Not really in a positive or negative way, more just acknowledging that USC is now going to be able to get back uh, to an even level playing field, basically, in terms of scholarship players on the roster. And a lot of people want to see how they come back from sanctions. Um, you know, one kid that actually mentioned that specifically, and it was sort of an ironic interview, and I almost wanted to write it that way, but it would have probably meant me kind of interjecting some et op into it, so I kind of backed off of it. But Gregory Little is a 2016 offensive tackle from Allen, Texas, and uh, one of the best players in Texas for the 2016 class. And he was at the five-star challenge, and uh, he'd recently gotten a scholarship offer from USC and had talked to Chris Wilson a little bit about the program, and he mentioned specifically about sanctions and wanting to see how USC 
came back from the sanctions and whether they're able to kind of maintain uh, that uh, traditional championship level uh, type play. And he remembers Reggie Bush and talked about Reggie Bush and kind of the success that USC had uh, during that run with Pete Carroll. And then kind of finished up the interview saying that, you know, one of the important things he's going to, you know, really look at with schools is major and he wants to be in sports management because he wants to be an agent. So we actually had an interview where sanctions, Reggie Bush, and being a sports agent all were in the same article. <laughs> so I thought that was, like, very encompassing of, of everything, you know, coming out of the sanctions for USC. And so, uh, so yeah, there has definitely been some mention of that, and uh, I think a lot of the kids look forward to what is USC going to do now. You know, what are they going to be able to come out of sanctions strong or are they still going to, you know, have a few years before they're able to really get back to the point uh, in which they can be a championship team? Granted, I mean, it, it takes sometimes just time because you just need to have the right pieces to the puzzle kind of fit. I mean, USC didn't have sanctions, and under Paul Hackett, they were terrible. So it's one of those things that, you know, you do have to have the right ingredients, and um, certainly, you know, everybody's kind of waiting and seeing if uh, sanctions were really were – you know, hurting USC or it just was, you know, maybe coaching and some other factors that uh, after Pete Carroll left, they weren't able to be that type of level team. All right. Uh, well, then, so we talked about that. There's uh, some general kind of recruiting questions. Terry ends up and he wants to know, can you p- briefly describe the materials such as letters, brochures, videos that USC uses to introduce a new recruit to the school and the program? Thanks and keep up the good work. Well, in terms of what they send a recruit, the first thing they're going to send a recruit are usually questionnaires and pamphlets uh, because before a a recruit's junior year, they can't receive anything that's personalized. So nothing can be signed. There can be no personal letters. It basically has to be generic um, literature about the school and questionnaires, uh, basically with the school reaching out saying, hey, this is a little bit about us. Send us back, you know, some information on yourself, and maybe it comes out that, you know, this would be a good fit for you type thing. Um, At the point where they're able to send them personalized letters uh, after, I think it's September 1st of their junior year, they start to do so. Now, granted, Twitter, Facebook, social media in general has completely opened up the recruiting process to younger players because there really aren't the stringent rules around those things as there are around personalized letters and phone calls. Um, So it really changes from recruit to recruit, but I think basically if you're looking at the sort of uh, common model, you would see, you know, the pamphlets and the questionnaires and then that leading to more personal letters. Um, They're able to make that phone call when they're getting into the junior year, the second semester in the May evaluation period. That's the first time they're able to get a phone call from a coach. Obviously, the kids can call the coaching staff at any time. They can take unofficial visits to the campus at any time and talk to the coaches one-on-one um, and then in terms of what they're given when they're on campus you know whether it be a junior day or or some type of event like rising stars um, they'll show them videos they'll go in they'll watch tape they'll do a bunch of those things in terms of what they're able the school itself sends to the recruits it kind of changes it and I think that's probably the most ambiguous um, part of the question in terms of rules and what they're able to do you know some schools send like some very interesting uh, artful type things and, and posters and things like that. And there are some rules as to how big and, and how much money they can spend on a particular item. You know, something that was very creative that I saw that USC has done this past spring is that uh, you have in the locker rooms the personalized uh, nameplates of each player. 
And what USC has done is actually basically taken that, uh, those nameplates, made recruits nameplates out of them. So let's say, you know, number 90 is George Uko. Well, they have, you know, number 90 instead would be maybe Rasheem Green. So they'll put Rasheem Green number 90, and it won't be the same, you know, material as the nameplate. It'll be something like, uh, you know, some type of paperwork that's maybe laminated. And they've sent those out in recruiting letters, which the kids have retweeted, and obviously they thought was really cool. So, you know, there's those creative ways that they bring different things to the table. Um, but you can't, you know, send them videos. You can't – you can send them links to videos, you know, on maybe the Ripsit site or something, you know, the coaches do that a lot. Uh, the coaches tweet out different videos that are, you know, kind of bent towards recruiting a lot. But in terms of sending them material, there's definitely a lot of rules as to, you know, how much money you're spending on a particular uh, letter or, or package or, or something like that. Usually it's just, you know, a lot of glossy photos and a lot of little uh, personalized things which, you know, maybe a kid is, is they'll take a picture of a kid and they'll uh, basically Photoshop him in a jersey or a, or, or a football helmet. I mean, I saw something that was – it was one of the most lame things I've ever seen with the recruit. I won't name the recruit, but I think it was Wyoming that it basically – put his profile picture, like his head from the profile picture, and stuck it in uh, a, 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 an action shot of the player running. And it just looked so dumb. I mean, it was just like a guy was standing there, like, doing a profile shot, which the kids just looks like he's standing there taking a profile shot. And it's his head in, in, a, in a face mask, and it, it's his action shot. It, just, it was a weird – it was kind of creepy, to be honest with you. It was kind of weird. But, <laughs> you know, these schools don't think about that. They're just like – and maybe the kids don't either. They just see their face, on, you know, in a, in a helmet of a, of a certain team, and it's like, wow, this is the coolest thing in the world. Somebody's actually put my face, uh, you know, in their, in their uniform, you know, on, on one of their helmets. So they do creative different things to try to, you know, hit home the fact that they want them at that school and this is how you would look in this jersey. And obviously with Twitter and Facebook, and this is taking this, you know, question in another direction, the fan bases now have sort of started to do that as well. You're seeing a lot on Twitter where fans start to Photoshop things and, and you know, put guys in stadiums and uniforms and, and things like that to make them feel like, oh, yeah, we really want you. And that adds a whole nother gray area of recruiting, you know, and boosters and alumni and, you know, how, how, how you know, are any of these coaching staffs actually trying to organize this stuff kind of on the low within Twitter, having, you know, a bunch of different fans go and reach out to kids and make it look like it's just a fan thing. But when in essence, it's actually being controlled by the school under the radar. We've heard a lot of that kind of stuff over the years, um, you know, chants and signs and things that, you know, just all, the, you know, miraculously, spontaneously pop up at these stadiums and it seems a little more organized than just a bunch of fans getting together deciding that you know they want to get this recruit so they're all going to get together and and you know have all these elaborate signs and things so um that's a kind of you know branching out into another direction uh, but in general that's kind of sort of the pathway to you know recruit it, it becomes you know very generic and then it becomes a little more personalized and then it's you know basically trying to get that kid on your campus and and showing him all the different dimensions from a media standpoint and uh you know obviously schematically, you know, trying to put them in to the, the frame of mind of, you know, this is what it would be like to be here at USC or whatever college uh, those coaches are recruiting for. All right. Uh, thanks for that, Tarian. Uh, let's see. Nolan, a lot of times when we follow recruiting, uh, we see that a prospect has taken an official or unofficial visit to a school. What is the difference? Do you get certain privileges on an official visit? And is there a limit on how many times you can visit? That's from Nolan. 
yes, you only get one official visit. Um, and uh, right now for high school kids, that can't, can't take an official visit until the beginning of their senior years. And all expenses are paid for. So uh, the recruits, flights paid for if they fly out, or they can be driven to campus as well. Um, food, boarding, everything is paid for. Whereas an unofficial visit, nothing is paid for. That's all on the recruit. They have to pay for that. And they can take an unofficial visit anytime, as many times as they want to. So that's really the main differences between officials and unofficial visits. Okay. Uh, and then we got one from uh, Green Hornet on the peristyle. Green um, Hornet. Green Hornet has been a very active uh, peristyle poster in just the recent season. He has. He's been uh, very good at stuff. So we want, he uh, wrote in, um, when there's a high school player that USC is interested in but is having difficulty with grades, is there anything that SC can do to, quote, unquote, guide him and provide him more focus to his grades? Speaking with school counselors, parents, his coach come to mind. Without guidance, how does the player gain self-assurance that he can conquer his issues with school or grades? I realize that USC has a, quote, unquote, lower limit permissible grades upon graduation that they can honor a scholarship offer. Uh, I'm speaking within the framework of the current NCAA and what is permissible. What is all this quote unquote? Are we just, is this wink and nod quote unquote? I, I don't know. What are you trying to imply? Quote unquote. Um, yeah, no, they, they definitely can guide. Uh, they can definitely go in and, you know, the coaches, you know, during the May evaluation period, they have two different, um, evaluation visits. One is academic and then one is uh, scholastic athletic. And so what they do most of all, especially in California, because a lot of times the May evaluation period technically actually starts April 15th and goes to May 31st. So early in April, a lot of these kids are not even on the football field. Spring football in California doesn't really start until very late April, early May, second week of May sometimes. So you really come in and, and what the coaches are doing is they're going into the counselor's offices and they're trying to get as much information on the kids and their transcript as possible so they're able to bring that back to usc and they'll be able to show okay this is what we need to do from a standpoint of getting this kid on the right pathway to a being a graduate in general or b being an early graduate because we've seen a lot of that right now with a lot of mid-years um and if a kid is maybe you know on the cusp of being eligible or maybe he has some work to make up uh the counselors at usc can specify and get very specific and contact the the counselors at the high school and make sure that uh you know that person that prospect has the, the information to get on the pathway and take the right classes. So it's really about directing them to the right classes. These are the classes that you need. These are the classes that are acceptable by USC and obviously UC and state schools. They all have different requirements in terms of electives. You know, are you taking this art class? Or are you taking another foreign language class? Um, the core classes are pretty much there. Everybody has to, uh, you know, hit their math, science, and English. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the electives are really the classes that, you know, can kind of be shifted in and out. So, you know, what USC wants to do is basically get the information on where that prospect stands academically. And then they could definitely go in and say, look, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. Check in with me every week. Um, I want to make sure that you're taking the right summer school classes. Uh, I want to make sure that you're taking, you know, the right math classes. I want to make sure that, you know, you've got your, um, your, your date set up for your ACT and your SAT. And they can definitely direct them and guide them. I think Noah Jeff is a perfect example of USC being proactive in that standpoint. A lot of schools have not offered him because from a grade standpoint, he's not doing very well. He's a little bit behind. So USC says, okay, we could wait to the very last minute, see if he's improved, see if he's gotten a good test score, see if maybe, you know, he's made up some core classes or, or done something to, to, 
you know, signify that we need to go after him because he's going to qualify, or we can do it early and try to get him on the right path to qualifying. And I think that's what they've done. And with a guy like Noah Jefferson, I think it's a good gamble because he, as a player, is a great player. And you know what? He's not a dumb kid either. I mean, if you talk to him, he, he's a guy that I think just probably was lazy and probably blew off some classes early in his high school career. He can get on the right track, and he can definitely uh, be a guy that should be able to qualify. So I think they looked at that and they probably evaluated him as a student as well as just an athlete and decided, you know what, we can take a gamble on this guy, but we got to give him some direction. We got to make sure that he gets to the right counselors. We got to make sure that, you know, I mean, it, and it's counselors at his high school, but it's also, and he takes an unofficial visit, he can come in and he can sit down with the counselors and the academic advisors at USC and they can look at his stuff and go, okay, wait, 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 wait. why are you doing this when you should do this? Why are you doing this when you should do this? Let's make sure we've got the right classes and you've got your ducks in a row in order to be able to qualify. All right. Well, good stuff, Gerard. That's uh, that's all the questions we had. Any uh, any other tidbits you want to share with the the listeners as far as recruiting goes? Not really, man. We've got the B2G camp this weekend. We're going to see uh, kind of how that shakes out. Um, going to be a, a, a kind of mix of local players and some national players that usually show up. Um, you know, just going to be camp after camp after camp every weekend here, basically. And uh, we'll see how that develops. So I think Rising Stars camp should be pretty big for USC. Probably, I think maybe a commitment or two, uh, definitely in the mix for that. And we'll see uh, from a national standpoint who's able to show up. Obviously, we're not able to be there in person, which sucks. I mean, we definitely wanted to be there in person. We lobbied to be able to cover the camp, uh, but USC shut it down. And so uh, hopefully in the future they open it back up and, you know, we're able to kind of cover it, you know, head to toe like we do with everything else that we do at uscfootball.com. But um, we're just kind of getting ready and bracing ourselves for a lot of events and uh, maybe some news and kind of USC setting themselves up for the regular season in terms of uh, the, you know, the recruiting class. All right. Well, great stuff, Gerard. Thanks uh, for coming on the show and everyone else. Thanks for being patient. We haven't had a recruiting podcast for a while. We get tweets about it. If you want to follow Gerard on Twitter, he's at Gmart live. I'm at inside Troy. Definitely check that out. But yeah, we get a lot of requests on Twitter for the podcast. So I'm glad we got to do it, but thanks again, Gerard. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for uh, tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast, Trojan Blast Recruiting Edition of the Peristyle Podcast. We'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.